This is week number 30 in our study in the book of Daniel, and we're over in chapter 7. And you've been here, you know that for the last several weeks we've been looking at the interpretation of this vision that Daniel had in the third year of King Belshazzar in the kingdom of Babylon. So this is like a flashback that Daniel's given us to a vision that he had uh, at least 15 years before where, we were, where we've already gotten in the chronological uh, order of things that Daniel gives us. And you remember this vision is one of four beasts that come up out of the, uh, the sea that's tumultuous. And that this, these four beasts correspond, I believe, to the things that we saw in chapter 2 in the great image, although now we're given more detail about them. And so Daniel is most concerned, and he asks this bystander about it, about the fourth kingdom that's seen, because this is a kingdom, you remember, couldn't be described as an animal. It's dreadful, uh, has teeth of irons, and tromples things with its feet that... Um, It had ten horns on it, and out of of the midst of those ten horns came an eleventh smaller horn, and that horn had three of the other horns pulled up by the roots and presented before him, and that he has uh, eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth that's boisterous. And so this is a human leader that comes um, over these ten other leaders that in some way are united, because this is all one beast, but yet ten horns and then an 11th horn so this beast if we've seen Daniel described is different than all the other beasts because all of them had one horn and were led by uh, one man at the center and at the top whereas this beast already exists with 10 horns and these men are cooperating with one another in some united way and then this 11th horn comes up and basically takes control of the whole beast and the whole um other ten kings and governs what they do and what they say and the most alarming thing to Daniel about this 11th beast is that this small horn who comes on the scene um, is not only waging war against the saints the saints of God but he's overpowering them and he's putting them down so it appears as if he is going to destroy them and take total control of them And, of course, we already know the end of the story because the bystander gave it to Daniel, that that doesn't happen, but that the saints um, ultimately receive the kingdom and possess the dominion. And so Daniel knows that, but this still is causing him great concern because he's seeing those who believe as he believes being overpowered and uh, overtaken. And you remember in verse 25, uh, Daniel describes that, or the bystander describes that this uh, horn is not over only waging war and speaking boisterously against the highest one and wearing down the saints, he says, but he also has an intentions to make alterations to times and laws. And that even beyond that, that this, um, Daniel wants to know, well, how long is this going to endure? How long is this going to go on? So today we'll see the answer to those questions and try and make some sense of what uh, the bystander continues to to speak to Daniel as he's um, trying to answer Daniel's questions about this fourth beast. And so this morning we'll read the same thing we read last week. Hopefully we'll get through this chapter today. But we'll begin in Daniel chapter 7 verse 23 and read down through the end of the um, the chapter. You want to invite somebody to come on in? Because we, we should have uh, enough seats for them. Come on in. Plenty of room for you. So beginning in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 23, there the scripture reads, Thus he said, The fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all of the other kingdoms, and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise and another will arise after them and he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings. He will speak out against the most high and wear down the saints of the highest one and he will intend to make alterations in times and in law and they will be given into his hand for a time, times and half a time. But the court will sit for judgment and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated and destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, the dominion 
and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all the dominions will serve and obey him. At this point, the revelation ended. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming me and my face grew pale, but I kept the matter to myself. So this this vision that Daniel had that nobody else saw, that Daniel wrote notes about and details about after he had the vision, he keeps it a secret. And so until he writes it here in this book, nobody else knows about this. And as a matter of fact, even this book that he writes, we'll see it in the last chapter, he's told to hide it, to put it away. Don't show it to anybody else. And so we have great privilege today that the people even of Daniel's time did not have, that we can read um, these words that we can gain greater understanding because now the full revelation has been given. So we have a great privilege uh, of walking through these things and understanding them. So that's what we want to try and do this morning. So this, um, this little horn is waging war and overpowering the saints. And here in verse 25, he says that he's actually wearing them down, meaning they're not winning. They're losing this battle against this little horn. And we talked about this last week. He intends to make alterations to law and to times. And, and so what does that mean that he's going to do? When you, when you think about this passage and all that's being written here, remember this is written by a Jewish man, right? Daniel, who is still devout, still as much as possible practices Judaism. So to Daniel, when he talks about altering times and laws, what's he talking about? His, his method of worship, right? The way that God prescribed for the Jews to worship him. They had, uh, uh, we've talked about this um, when we were back in um, the Gospel of John, if you were here then, and we walked through all the pages of John, and what we saw often was that Christ did things corresponding to the festivals and during the festivals. And those festivals are seasonal and they happen year after year. And there are three prescribed times every year when all the men of the kingdom of the Jews are supposed to go to the central place of worship. And at a time that was the tabernacle, later it was Jerusalem. And of course, he's prevented from doing that. But nevertheless, those laws have not been abolished. Those things still stand. And when we're told... Uh, in other prophecies, that those things will resume at the end of the age. That there's a new, another temple that's going to be built, the third temple uh, of the Jews that will be built, and that they will begin to sacrifice again, and they will practice Judaism in the way that it was practiced in ancient days. That's not going on today, but it will happen again um, in the end of the age. So when this little horn comes on the scene, which is at the very end of the little age, Those things will be being practiced. And so he will intend to make alterations to those. He will change the way that the Jews will be able to worship. He will um, abolish the festivals and he'll outlaw things and uh, he'll outlaw the the worship in the temple and the sacrifices that they used to do. That will be what the little horn will do to annihilate Judaism and the Jews. That will be his plan. That's what he will desire to do. And there have been times in history that foreshadow what will happen in those last days. And you remember this, that um, the leopard, which represented Alexander the Great's kingdom, had four wings on its back and it had four heads in this, in this chapter as we see it. And that represents the split of the Grecian kingdom when Alexander the Great dies. And you have four kingdoms that begin immediately after Alexander to make war against each other. And two of those kingdoms become dominant. You have the the Poltami, which is down in Egypt, and you have the Seleucids, which are in the area of Syria and, and gain most of the territory of the old Grecian kingdom. So you have these two factions that are warring against each other, and that goes on until the time of the Romans, all the way up until the first century B.C. And so this goes on for hundreds of years, this warring, and a man comes on the scene. I believe he's the fifth leader of the Seleucids, and his name is Antiochus IV Epiphanes. 
And Antiochus warred against the Ptolemies and actually went into Egypt and took a good bit of their territory. But then in, uh, he, he, he did it once and he did it a second time just before 170 B.C. And in 170 B.C., a rumor came back from those wars that Antiochus had been killed. And so at that rumor coming back into um, the lands that he um, controlled, which included Jerusalem and all of the Israelites, at that point, when they heard that he had died, the Maccabeans had a revolt against the Seleucids. And so Antiochus heard about that. He was not dead indeed. And so he traveled back to Jerusalem and ransacked the city, put down the Maccabean revolt and absolutely destroyed the city of Jerusalem. He, he took, in, in the span of three days, 40,000 Jews were killed indiscriminately, men, women, children, all of them indiscriminately at the hands of Antiochus. And then he took another 40,000 and sold them into slavery. So 80,000 people in the span of three days were either killed or sold into slavery by Antiochus. Well, beyond that, he did several other things. He went into the temple and he sacrificed a pig on the altar of God and spread the juices all throughout the temple so that he would defile everything that there was. He then took that that altar and he changed it into an altar for Zeus and called for the people to, to worship Zeus. And beyond that, he went and um, he outlawed Judaism so you could no longer practice Judaism in any way. And if you did, you would die He also forbid uh, reading of the Torah. The Torah could no longer be read. And all of the Jewish um, or all of the Hebrew scriptures, he forbade anybody to read any of that. He went beyond that and he took the festivals that the Jews would normally practice and he changed those to a festival for his god Bacchus, who's the god of wine and pleasure. And so they had to practice worship of Bacchus or die at the hands of this man. So this is clearly alteration in times and in law. He outlawed Judaism. He changed their festivals. um, He changed their worship in the temple. He changed everything. And so this is a, a foreshadowing. Antiochus, most people believe, is a foreshadowing in 170 A.D., of what the BC of what the little horn will do at the end of the age. If you if you analyze what is said about the little horn, and what is said about what um, Antiochus actually literally did in history, they correspond in many po- points. I was reading about some of this this past week, and I saw one man who analyzed it and put together fifteen exact things that rise out of the scripture that Antiochus did in 170 AD, and they match perfectly. So Antiochus is a foreshadowing of what will happen at the end of the age, but only a foreshadowing. It'll be much worse when the little horn comes on the scene. So it's not like we don't have a glimpse of what altering times and and laws looks like. We can see it. You can go read today. I mean, there are a lot of details about the invasion of Antiochus over the Maccabeans and putting them down. You can read in the Apocrypha many passages about exactly what happened. You can read um, the historians of the day, and they have great details over how these battles happened, who was involved in the battles. As a matter of fact, I'll give you some of this as we go later, because it's very interesting when Rome actually gets destroyed in 70 AD, at whose hands does that happen? And it's not what you think. And so we'll get into all those details later. But right now, we we can see in the actions of Antiochus what altering times and laws looks like. It's very clear. And uh, it's not like this is an obscure passage and it's something that we can't understand because we have an example in history. And a lot of people believe that at the hands of Antiochus, this prophecy was fulfilled. But there's a problem with that, right? Because in Matthew 24, Jesus refers to this prophecy and says it's yet future. It hasn't happened yet. 
So that takes away those arguments. And, and all the, the craziness about this book was written in either the 1st or the 2nd century B.C. instead of the 6th century B.C. And all that just crumbles when Christ points back to the words that Daniel wrote and, and supports them and gives them strength and undergirds them with his belief that they're going to still happen. Go ahead, Anna. David, do we know historically when Daniel's book was in fact made public? Obviously before Jesus that statement, right. but was it made public uh, by 170 B.C. when all of these things of Antiochus took place? The, did, did people sort of speculate, hey, he's the... I don't know that personally. I know that all through um, the years of the Jews after they had returned back to their land and you, you have somewhat of a strengthening of them, that there were councils and groups who decided what would be included in the scriptures and what wouldn't. That, con- that continued even into the, um, the time after Christ, when again we had councils and, and groups who decided this should be included, this shouldn't be included. That's where the Apocrypha arose, that those books uh, we believe were, are not part of the canon of Scripture, but they're historical and most of them are accurate and there's some good information in there, but it doesn't rise to the level of Scripture. But I don't know exactly when the book of Daniel was made public to the people. You're right, it's clear that by the time of Christ... Everybody knew about it. As a follow-up question, the word, and this is, of course, in English, um, times. Right. It's used twice in that sentence. Uh, first of all, it changes in times come off. Right. And secondly, the duration of the um, little horn's sway. Right. And in my Bible, anyway, it references Revelation, and it goes back <laughs> for the time, times, and half a time. Right. I've always heard it two and a half or three and a half years yeah well let's talk about that because the 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 no the bystander is trying to answer daniel's questions and apparently daniel asked him about well how long is this war and this overpowering of the saints going to last and so he answers him and he says it'll last for a time times and half a time so time would be one times would be two and half a time uh, would be a half so you do have one plus two plus a half is three and a half. Okay, then you have to decide, well, what periods uh, is this talking about? Sort of like when um, uh, Nebuchadnezzar went crazy, right? And it's seven, it says for seven periods of time, and we didn't try and define that as years, um, but it had to be an extended period of time because of the change that happened to him physically. So, but here I think we have more evidence and that we can... Um, begin to think about are these years or these months or these decades what are these and so this this phrase or these words time times and half a time are used three times in scripture okay two of them are in Daniel so the second one that where Daniel references is over in chapter 12 yeah Daniel 12 and verse 7 now at the end here (laughs) The way that I believe that Daniel works and the reason he wrote it in the order that he wrote it is because you're given revelation such as in chapter 2. Then in chapter 7, that revelation is expanded. In chapter 8, we'll see it expanded even more. In 9, it gets even greater. And then in 12, it gets even more detailed. And 11 has over 100 predictions about what's going to happen in the future. So as Daniel goes through the book, even though they're not written chronologically in order, you get greater and greater and greater revelation until you get to the end. And then here at the end, Daniel is being told what to do with this. Okay, And, and it's kind of a review of a lot of the things that have already happened. But in verse 7, you, you have Daniel, and he's got all this information. And then he's told not to give it to anybody. And... And then it's kind of summarized here when he said, and, and there's this man who's dressed in linen who comes into heavens, apparently an angel um, who's speaking to Daniel and giving him information. There are other guys who are standing beside him and giving him information. But verse 7 says, I heard the man dressed in linen who was above the waters on the river, and he raised his right hand and left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time times and half a time and as soon as the 
they finish shattering the power of the holy people, all these events will be completed. So this is like a guarantee to Daniel, swearing by the God of heaven that this timing that we're given back in chapter 7 is exact and precise and will happen. And it'll happen at the very end of the age when the saints are overpowered and shattered. Okay, so here we have it again in Daniel. Then it's given over in Revelation. And so Revelation 12 and verse 14. And we'll see the same time that is given. And this is one of the, the great links between Daniel and the book of Revelation. And there are many, but this is one of the strongest ones because this is the only other place in Scripture where this phrasing um, occurs. So in chapter 12 and verse 14. Now, this is, um, this is a time after uh, Satan has been cast out of heaven, physically cast out of heaven down to the earth. And his realm is now, you know, he's the prince of the power of the air today, right? And so he has freedom to go before the throne of God and accuse the saints. And there's warfare in the heavens and all these things going on that uh, the scripture speaks about. Well, at this time in history, Satan is cast out of heaven down to the earth and restrained to only the earth. So he can't go anywhere else to wreak his havoc. He can no longer go before the throne of God. He's been cast down. And so he goes after the Jewish people. The Jewish people are referred to as the woman. They flee from him and are protected in this verse. Okay, so they flee from the Satan who's been cast down to the earth and bound to that realm. And then in verse 12, it speaks of this timing again. For the 12, 14. But the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman, that's Israel, so that she could fl- fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. So for during this period of time, even though there's great destruction, there's um, a lot of havoc wreaked on the planet, there's a lot of things that go on. The Jews themselves are protected in the desert somewhere, hidden by God, so that the Antichrist can no longer come against them. It says he pours out water out of his mouth, the scripture goes on, to catch catch them as they flee. And the earth opens and swallows all the water up. So God orchestrating the protection of the Jews. And then the very last verse of chapter 12, I believe it is. So the dragon was enraged with the woman because he couldn't catch her. And went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. This is what Daniel is writing about when he says that they're waging war against the saints and they're wearing down the holy ones. That's what this is. It's this time in Revelation chapter 12 where Satan is cast to the earth, can no longer go anywhere else, is enraged against the Jews, tries to capture them. God protects them for three and a half years. And then because of that, he turns his attention to anybody else who believes in Jesus. Because the Jews, at the middle of the tribulation, the walls of Jerusalem crumble, kill Um, a fourth of all the Jewish people there, but the rest, Romans chapter 11 says, the rest believe, meaning they trust Jesus as their Savior. They place their faith in Jesus, and in response to that, this orchestration of protecting them in the desert happens for three and a half years. Go ahead. Quick question. Yeah. At the end of Daniel uh, chapter 12, which you mentioned. Right. At the very end of the chapter, it says there shall be 1,290 days. Right. Let's, is, uh, I, I guess, 13 days more than three and a half years. Is, well, not, a, not, not precisely, okay? Let me talk about that for a minute, because that is next in my notes, so I appreciate the setup. Okay. <laughs> Let's read what he's talking about. Chapter 12, this is, all right, this, this congruence of Daniel 7 with chapter 12 with Revelation um, is gives support to the thought that these times that we're talking about here are years. Here's greater support to that very statement given in uh, the, the end of chapter um, 12. Let me figure out how much of this I want to read. 
Not very much. Okay, so let me read something for you before we read this so I can put it in time space for you, okay? Look at chapter 9 and start in like verse 24. This is in chapter 9 is the um, prophecy given to Daniel by the angel Gabriel of the 70 weeks of Daniel, okay? Now, we're going to talk about this in great detail when we get there, right? But in order to understand what's being written about times, times, and half a time, you have to go look at some of these things to try and inform your mind about what this is talking about. So in Daniel 9, uh, beginning in verse 24, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make the, an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So this is, these 70 weeks are given to finish the end of the age and bring in righteousness and to accomplish everything that God has said. All right? So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in the times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the Prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offerings. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate even until a complete destruction. One that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. All right, now, several things in here, right? That very last verse that I I read, and he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offerings. What is that? changing of times and law. There it is, right there. All right, and you notice this abomination of desolation that is spoken of. Okay, that's a, um, I believe Antiochus foreshadowed that when he sacrificed the pig on the altar and he desecrated the altar of God and the temple of God. That's an abomination of desolation. Jesus Christ speaks about this in Matthew 24 and says it's yet still future. It's coming. Okay, Now, you take these things. You you also notice, I mean, there's just a lot right here. We will spend a lot of time here. Verse 24, 25, notice what it says. What's the purpose of giving these details? So that you will know and discern. So the book of Daniel and all of Revelation is given to confuse us, right? Isn't that what you hear all the time? Oh, you can't understand that stuff. It's just confusion. You can't make sense of it. Um, Nobody really knows what it means. Well, it's given so that you may know and discern. So that's the purpose in in the prophecies. So we are to be diligent to know and discern, right? So, I mean, this, this is not given so that we'll be confused. It's given so that we'll have greater hope and we'll know how to govern our minds as we think about the world that we live in and what we should think. Okay, so all of these things, we'll put them all together later. All right, now, we'll go over and look at what you wanted me to look at. Look at Revelation, I'm sorry, Daniel chapter 12. And you have this timing given. Now, notice in verse 11 of chapter 12. This is the very end, right? Right at the very end of Daniel. From the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abominations of desolations is set up. That's what we just read about. There will be 1,290 days. How blessed is he who keeps waiting and attains to the 1,335th day. Okay, 1,290 days. Now, putting this together with chapter 9, what did chapter 9 say would have to happen after the abomination of desolations? How, how is it divided up time-wise? It says there's, there's a final week, right? And in the middle of the final week, you have the abomination of desolations and peace is turned to war, right? That's basically what that passage says. All right, a week would be seven days. 
half of that would be three and a half. So we again have time times and half a time, three and a half days. All right. Now that's corresponding to this what we just read in chapter twelve, right? Because he says from the abomination of desolations, which happens in the three with three and a half years still left remaining on the clock, you have 1,290 days, all right? We have to do a little studying, and you understand that the Jewish year did not have 365 and a quarter days like ours does. It had 360 days, okay? And in addition to that, occasionally, because if you had 360 days in your year, and you continued that way forever, then you would get totally out of whack with the seasons, Right, And so the grain offerings and the sacrifices and all couldn't be done in conjunction with the harvesting of the crops because you'd be out of sync. So at their discretion, the Sanhedrin would add a 13th month every now and then. It was not on every seventh year or every tenth year. It was at their discretion. So through the years, they would add 30 days to their year. All right, now, if you have a 360-day year, then 1,290 does not correspond to half of that year, to three and a half of those years. If you have 360 days, how many days is, 300, uh, is three and a half years? Let's put it in days. 1,260. 1,260 days. Now, if it just happened to be the time when the Sanhedrin would add a month in the, during those three and a half years, you then add 30 days, and you've got 1,290 days. So I believe that's what this is speaking about and gives great support to the fact these time and times and half a time are years. All right, if they're years and they correspond to the prophecy of Daniel, then a week is seven years, and 70 weeks is 490 years, and it's literal years because now we're down to days. Okay, so putting all this together, the Messiah is cut off in Daniel chapter 9, when? In what week? For God's own reason, he divides this into seven weeks, 69 weeks, and then the 70th week. Sorry, 62 weeks. You got seven and 62, which makes 69. And it says, after that time, the Messiah will be cut off. That's the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. After the end of the 69th week of the prophecy of Daniel. I and, and I'll, we'll go through this, but I believe not only is it just 69 weeks, that's 69 times 7 years, I believe that it is precise from the declaration for the Jews to go back into Jerusalem. And there were three of those, three decrees for the Jews to go back into, into um, their homeland, one, you know, given by different kings. We will have to talk about those when we get there. Okay, I believe that not only is it just close, I believe it's precise to the very day of the time when the decree was made to when Christ was sacrificed. God did not make an error. He's a God of precision. He's a God of prophecy. And just because the calendar was messed up um, when they changed over um, from the Jewish calendar into the Gregorian calendar and they missed a few years and all. It doesn't matter. And we'll talk about all of that and how that timing works. I, I believe that this prophecy is precise. I have enough confidence in God to believe it's to the very day. That, that's why God instituted the Passover is so that in a miraculous way he could have Christ sacrificed on the very day he wanted him to be sacrificed. That's why Christ took the Passover on the night before the Passover instead of the night of the Passover because he was from the northern tribes. We talked about all of this when we went through John, that the northern people took their um, Passover meal on the night before the Passover, believing that sundown started the Passover and that those from the southern kingdom from Judea took theirs on the day of the Passover. That's why when Christ is taken into um, whose house? No, no. When he's when he's when they're we're getting ready to try him, whose house is he taken to? Caiaphas' house. That's why the Jews stay outside of the gates, because they have not yet had the Passover. And if they went into the gates, they would have defiled themselves. So they stayed outside of the gates because they're from the southern kingdom. They were from Judea. Christ had already had the Passover the night before, 
Those things are not coincidental. They're not accidental. So that at the very time that those men who murdered Christ were taking their Passover meal, Christ was on the cross. So it would be precise and exact. So it's not just by coincidence or accident that these things happen, that these festivals were established, that the timing is given here in Daniel. It is all very, very precise and exact. Go ahead. Times and half the times have any correspondence to Revelations 13 um, when he speaks about the great beast rising out of the ocean? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. That is the 42 months we're talking about, right? The Antichrist is on the scene. Is that in every translation, 42 hmm. months? Yeah. The, the Antichrist, and, and months is uh, always questionable, right? Okay, yeah, I mean, all these words are, you could, you, we could talk a long time about them. We won't, not this morning. The Antichrist is on the scene for a while before we start having havoc, right? He rules over the three and a half years of peace or pseudo peace that's going on. I mean, there is great destruction. You know, we've talked about this. Uh, three-eighths of the people on the planet die during those three and a half years. Because there's earthquakes and there's uh, tsunamis and there's disease and pestilence and just all kinds of things going on that are bad. For, so three-eighths of the people on the planet die during that period of peace. Okay, so the, the, the world is looking for someone to rule them because there's so much havoc. And so the Antichrist rules, but at the middle... The abomination of desolation. He takes over the temple. The Jews have rebuilt their temple. They're sacrificing during those three and a half years. They think everything's good. The Messiah is still going to come. You know, that's, that's where they're at. That's their mindset. That's what's going on. And then in the middle, the Antichrist turns against them. The little horn, I believe, here turns against them. And for three and a half years, you've got waging wars against the saints of God. Go ahead. Uh, back to your comment about precision of prophecy. Yeah. How many churches try to conflict it and say, well, it's just too confusing to teach. Yeah, it is. Well, there's only a simple area. It is difficult to appreciate. No question. But you know that only certain recordings in the Bible give you a special blessing. And one is in Revelation, the first paragraph, mm-hmm. that blessed are those who hear yeah. and read. Right. Absolutely. God doesn't bless you for everything, but these are just a specific blessing that he gives. And um, you're exactly right. It's, it's right down to the minute, right down to the second. Yeah. These are not Jewish feasts that we're speaking about. These are feasts for the Lord. Yep. This is God's feast. Well, and all of those feasts, all of those feasts, all of the sacrifice system, all of the details, if you've ever studied it and you know this, all of it, every point of it, every detail of it points to Christ and the true sacrifice, and the true heavenlies, and the true altar of God. All the other is just an image of what the reality is. And everything, I mean, we're talking about the, uh, all the instruments in the Holy of Holies, all of the precision of the labor and the washings, everything points to Jesus Christ. And if you ever get the opportunity to study that, you ought to. And that study will be long. Obviously, the Jewish people in Israel know the prophecy. So when someone, the Antichrist, whatever that is, that comes to them with the treaty, with the decision to rebuild the temple, right. do they see this as the coming of their Messiah and they agree to the... Think about the All, right, they, all they have is the Old Testament, right? They don't have the revelation that we have. They have the Old Testament scriptures, the Jews do, because they don't believe in the New Testament. They have Daniel, all right? But... Think about it today. If someone came into Jerusalem and said, okay, the Muslims have agreed to get rid of their mosque and we're going to build this great temple described in Ezekiel and it's going to be grand and glorious and you can uh, find the ashes of the heifer and begin your sacrifices again and no one will bother you. Would they do it today? Absolutely. Would they do it today? Absolutely. Right. They don't. They don't. They don't know the scriptures as, as we studied them. Well, no. And, but if that was offered to them, would they jump at that chance? Absolutely. 
Absolutely. That's what they're waiting for. That's why they're going back there. So absolutely they would. So it's not far-fetched that this would happen. And they would be overjoyed with it. There is a group right now in Israel. Sure. Yeah. I had the privilege of meeting the rabbi. Yeah. Called Bax. Yeah. And, um, yeah, they're ready for it. They, they are. They, all they... Absolutely. And, and some of these things have been hidden through the years and, and yet are still secret that we don't know about all of them. You know, um, I'll, give, I'll just tell you something on the side here, okay? You remember um, uh, Indiana Jones? Well, there's a, a guy named Vendel Jones who that was written after. And in 1983, I heard, 82, I heard Vendel Jones speak. And he talked about and, and, and what he was trying to do was based on the archaeological facts and the, and the things that were written at the time when they hid all the articles and all, he was trying to find them, okay? And the, that story, and, and he had a lot of fantastic things happen to him. The, the movies obviously exaggerated it. But a lot of those things, I mean, were reality that actually happened to him. And, you know, they went into caves and they found the, the marble stones on the floor. And you, so you say, why, why haven't we uncovered all of this? And why don't we know about all this? Because it's too hot to work there. So people would die of exhaustion trying to get through these floors and to go into all these tunnels and all. So, but this, these things are real. And you're right. The guys who, uh, the Temple Mount people who are still there, and still are waiting for the opportunity to rebuild the temple and to begin the sacrifices again, all of that will happen. Mm-hmm. All of it will happen. And, and Solomon or Solomon Gershon. I've met him 15 years ago, and I forgot. The, uh, you know, I'm going to bring it into you and, and read some of the things. We, we always read the American versions of what's going to happen, right? very, very interesting to read what the rabbis have written about this time. Very different from the way you and I speak about it and, 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 the, and the, some of the details that they believe. Doesn't mean they're right, right? But we'll open some of those things up as we go through this because very interesting in, in what they think compared to what the American version is. Go ahead. Well, if you're a non-New Testament Jew, right? But, maybe I mean they have their own theories too doesn't mean they're right right they have their own theories and so maybe maybe not maybe some do some don't like you said they don't take it seriously they really don't yes one point to consider that we often forget is that we only understand the scriptures by the Holy Spirit of God and the, the lost world does not That's right. understand the things of God That's right. So even if they understand it intellectually, like, yeah, I see how you believe that, but that's really, they would think that that's stupid and, and they would be hostile towards it. So, I mean, it should be no surprise to us that they would want all of these things to happen because they just don't have the spirit of Christ illuminating their mind. Right. You know, and as you study this and as we go through this, you do. You're a true believer in Jesus Christ. You have the Holy Spirit living within you. He can illumine your mind. We can understand these things. They're given so that we might understand them. So let's keep walking through. The, now, we may, not dis, we may disagree on some fine points, right? We, we can, and that's okay, because we all don't have complete knowledge about everything. So there's room for us to disagree on some things. The overall, I think we all agree on. The timing of things and the precision of them, maybe not. But I, what, what I will teach you is what this church believes and what I personally believe. Go ahead. God's precision when we get to chapter 9 the whole idea of the 70 years of captivity and what that's tied to and God's precision in that and then even in revealing that to Daniel through Jeremiah is just speaks to God's precision of timing yep yep I mean it, it, nothing is coincidental he he's the ruler of the realm of mankind right that's what the highest one is. We saw that last week in every passage. He's the ruler of the realm of mankind. He does what he pleases, and he is nothing is happening by accident or because we are strong enough to make it happen. Go ahead. To speak about that precision, uh, that, uh, I agree with you that uh, Jesus was crucified on the very day that God had planned. I propose that he died at the exact moment. Yes. 
Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. I believe that. Because, you know, all during that day when Christ was going through his ordeal, the Jewish priests were cutting throats of lambs and sacrificing them so the people could take them back and cook them. And at that time, Christ is hanging on the cross when all the lambs are being killed. It's not, that's not coincidental. The Baptist's first introduction of him is the Lamb of God. Yeah. To bear that out, and when we were in Jerusalem, they said that the temple, the priests were there inside the inner sanctuary doing that sacrifice, and at the moment of Jesus' death, the earthquakes hit, the curtain split, yep. and opened out. But they were in the process of doing the sacrifice, yeah, and they were just all horrified. You see rabbis running, right? Shrieking, <laughs> and torn from top to bottom all right to indicate that god did it go ahead just to clarify sure three and a half years are we talking about the latter half of the tribulation yes the last the, this 1290 days the last half of the week um is is the you know, the 42 months all of that it's the same time it's the last three and a half years of the tribulation that leads up to the slaughter in the valley of armageddon Oh, the temple! The temple will be there at the beginning of the tribulation, right? Or maybe built, maybe built right at the very beginning, or it could be built pre the seven years. You don't know, okay? But it will be rebuilt, and it'll be a massive effort by lots of countries and peoples to rebuild this temple, <clears throat> because it'll be orchestrated by the Prince of Peace as he will present himself to unite all peoples. Because the world is in turmoil. There's tsunamis, there's earthquakes, there's great natural disaster everywhere. Disease and pestilence killing lots of people. And so people are looking for someone to lead them, and he does, and he leads them to build the temple. Okay, all of that said. Off track a little bit, right? This all, gives, this all opens up those three and a half years, does it not? that he's giving us here. I believe that times, times, and half a time in Daniel chapter 7 is years for all of these reasons that we've talked about and all of the precision of God. And so when we get to chapter 9 and we start talking about 70 weeks, it is 70 sevens of years is what it's talking about. Yeah? I don't even know well enough to know the details of it, but are, is Netanyahu or any of the leaders of Israel, are they orthodox at all? You know, I don't know their religious affiliation. It doesn't matter because the rabbis will be the guys. Okay. Forget about the government. Well, yeah, 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 yeah. Israel's a theocracy, right? And so I think it'll change in the at the end. I think the rabbis will once again be the guys in control. I could be wrong, but I or, or either the rabbis will um, work together with the political leaders. You don't know exactly. But the rabbis will be leading the charge because it is a theocracy, right? In the minds of the, of, the, um, of the devout Jews, Israel is a theocracy led by God through the rabbis, right? Okay, now, all right, now, back to Daniel chapter 7 where we're talking about this time in which Daniel was greatly concerned because the little horn is overpowering the saints, right? It looks like he's beating them. I want to I give you just a couple of verses. What time is it? Okay, we've got plenty of time. <laughs> I want to give you a couple of verses um, that show you just how bad it is. Because Daniel doesn't give us the details. Okay, but how bad is it during this time? Look over to what Jesus said about this in Matthew 24. How bad is it? Matthew 24. And this is where we'll just kind of leave off and we'll pick back up, not having finished this chapter again. It's, um, I just can't re- help myself. And, you know, you ought to be reading about these things. I mean, I, I've got ten times what we've talked about today in my mind. Okay, because it just goes on and on. And so we have to limit it to some degree. Matthew 24, look down at verse 20. Well, I want to read a couple of verses here. 
24. Yeah, let's read in 20. This is the flight of the Jews. You know, we talked about it, where they go on the wings of the eagles and are protected in the desert. Well, this is it. Matthew 24, 20. But pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. For there will be great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. This is it. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. That's how bad it is. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him, for false Christ and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. So what is, this, what is Jesus telling them? I mean, you believe in election, right? If your doctrine is reformed, you believe that before the foundations of the earth, Christ, Jesus, and the Father, and the Spirit chose who would believe in Jesus Christ and then have been orchestrating human history to bring those to Jesus, right? For the glory of the Father, and for the praise of Jesus Christ. All right, now, what is one of the great doctrines that stands as a pillar with election? Right, we've got T-U-L-I-P, right? P could, the P could stand for permanent. Or it could stand for perseverance of the saints. It means that those who believe in Jesus Christ persevere to the end, right? Now, what is this? What is... Jesus describing the tribulation, the last three and a half years, says what? The deception is so great that if God didn't stop it, even the elect would fall. Even if it were possible, and we know it's not possible, but the deception, so those who don't believe in Jesus Christ, what chance do they have that they wouldn't fall to the deception? None, none. It will be complete, extensive, go on and on and on. There will be nobody other than the believers in Jesus Christ to escape the deception. I'm sorry, I have another question. Sure. So we talk about the woman fleeing into the desert. Yes. The yes. I do include the Gentiles into the elect, not in the flee. I believe the flee is for the woman who is Israel. And from the woman came the child who is Jesus Christ. So that is unique and specific given to the Jews. Christ here is giving it to the Jews. Let your flight not be in the winter. Okay, so talking to Jewish people. So I believe that is unique to the Jews. Now, will we could talk about this for a very long time. Will there be non-Jewish people who believe in Jesus Christ, placing faith in Christ during the tribulation? Absolutely. I believe there will be. A lot of people disagree with me on that. But I believe there will be because, gosh, we'll talk about it next week. There is just, there is, I'm just telling you, there is so much here. Then and, and, and hang with me. This is given that you will not be confused, but that you'll understand. So don't give up. And say, this is impossible. We can never understand all of this. We may not have it exactly right, but we do have the spirit within us who can illumine our minds and will if we'll be faithful to study. So trust him. Thanks for your time.